Hello, this is Dr. Crystal Downing, the author of Subversive, The Christ Culture, (laughs) and the shocking Dorothy L. Sayers. And I'm glad to be here with Pints with Jack. Come in by the gold gates or not at all, take my fruit for others or forbear. For those who steal or those who climb my wall shall find their heart's desire and find despair. This is Pints with Jack, Season 6, Episode 38, The Magician's Nephew, Part 2, Chapters 9 to 15. Hello everyone, here on Pints with Jack we're reading our way through the works of C.S. Lewis. I'm David, and I'm joined by my co-hosts Matt and Uncle Andrew, as well as Lazo Major, Dr. Kristen Ditchfield Lazo. This season, we have found ourselves among the stars, reading through the first of C.S. Lewis's science fiction trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet. But we haven't been in Malacandra today, we have been in Narnia, and we're reading the concluding part of the penultimate entry in the Chronicles of Narnia, The Magician's Nephew. So. Hello, everyone. We have literally just carried on from the previous episode. But Kristen, tell us what you've been up to recently. Oh, my goodness. Um, Lots of writing, always lots of writing and uh, planning some new things, uh, exploring the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm talking to some publishers about some things we might do because it is so rich and so deep and there is so much um, life wisdom, biblical wisdom, you know, that you can never get to the end of the Chronicles. because they're full of scripture, which we can never get to the end of. And so I'm excited to see, uh, too early to say, but excited to see what God does with all of that and thrilled to be here with you all. Well, it's very, it's very fortunate that you know a, a C.S. Lewis scholar in Matt, and I can probably help as well. And uh, I'm sure Andrew can contribute a thought or two. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I take offense to the fact that clearly it's obvious Andrew's a scholar and you ended up reversing it. So by putting me first, we clearly know I'm the least of all of these. <laughs> but the first will be last and the last shall be first, Matthew. Oh, way to pull out a scripture. Yes, that's, <laughs> that would have been a better way of saying. Uh huh. Well, we'll see about that. <laughs> she's too shy and uh, and modest to say that she's also starting her uh, very soon her uh, VBS for grown up girls. That's vacation Bible school for non Bible people. I was actually going to ask what's VBS stand for. <laughs> <laughs> it's a church kid thing, and I I do an online Bible study for women, and we kind of model it after vacation Bible school. We do arts and crafts, and and uh, share praise and worship songs, and do a Bible study. It's a lot of fun. The amount of people listening to this and are like, Matt, just fit into the perfect stereotype of a Catholic doesn't know scripture or the Bible. <laughs> it's just like, so true. VBS, what does the B part stand for? <laughs> what, what's a Bible? Can someone explain to me this scripture thing, this Bible thing? I'm going to have to send you some of Salty the Singing Songbook. Oh, yes, I remember wow. Salty. Yes. Because it's part and parcel of VBS. Because I have been introducing my son to Salty because uh-huh. my mother introduced me to Salty when I was little. Oh, and I'm driving, we're, we're driving to mass and I'm singing along loudly in the car. Alexander's loving it. My wife is looking at me like I'm a real weirdo. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> I haven't thought about Salty in ages. Oh yes. my goodness. That's great. We just listened to the episode where Salty introduces us to his family. Oh, there's some- Harmony, yeah. melody, and rhythm. Great yes. songs on that one. I love yes. that one. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, and of course, his wife, Saltina. Saltina, <laughs> yes. Like a cracker. My wife is also too modest to mention that um, she recently did a, a labyrinth, a prayer labyrinth evening for the women at the cathedral in here in central Florida. And they did a lovely article about that. And you can find that out there on social media. And she regularly um, facilitates uh, prayer labyrinth evenings. So if that's of any interest, you can find out more. And I'm sure they are amazing. <laughs> oh, Thanks, my. honey. Oh, Thank you. Yes. That was a <laughs> serp serpentine way to get there, David. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, I got to say something, too, while we're in this little cold open here. Um, David, I don't know if this is – this is. did Brandon Vaught tell you? So I ran into – Brandon Vaught, people who know he's been a guest on our show before. He works with the Word on Fire Institute. No, he hasn't. He hasn't. Oh, okay. He hasn't. He's been too busy. Okay, Landon, we're coming after you. You can't escape forever. <laughs> there we go. So anyways, um, so I ran into him at this this conference here where Bishop Barron was giving a talk on critical theory and wokeism. Incredible talk. But anyways, that's not the important part here. He uh, was talking about they're creating a, and I assume this isn't like insider information or anything, but um, an annotated version of the Word on Fire Institute, annotated version of the abolition of man. Oh, wow. I bet you Holly's doing that, right? I have no idea, but wait, you're referring to Dr. Michael Ward's version after humanity? I don't know. He just talked about an annotated version of Avalation of Man. Did he say it was coming out or it had come out? Did he did you talk about Michael Ward. So did this just come out and he was saying it just got released? Uh, no, we interviewed him about this book a while ago. <laughs> it came out a year ago or so. Maybe what he was saying is they're creating an annotated version of mere Christianity. Is there a thing like that? That I haven't seen yet, so that's a possibility. <laughs> yes, that's what it was, and he probably said because of the success there of the go. annotated version of Abolition of Man. Okay. Because we did talk about Father Michael Ward, this has to be it, so I guess there might be coming an annotated version of uh, Mere Christianity. Or not, who knows. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, my credibility is destroyed. Actually, you know what, uh, David, you might want to fire up the uh, shot class shelf because somebody out there is going to know what in the heaven's name Matt's talking about, is going to nail it perfectly, and then we're going to have to send him some swag. Oh my goodness, that was the most incredible thing, you're right. Uh, yeah, okay, yes. If anybody can substantiate this rumor, I will send you a pints with Jack glass. There we go. That's the deal. <laughs> that was a good time. And speaking of glasses, is everyone drinking the same thing or have any new drinks been introduced between the episodes? I have uh, switched now to Guinness. Mine's pretty much just the fever tree. I was like, I can't do two back-to-back -back ginger beers so I can have a thing. So I just poured this with ginger beer. <laughs> I'm still sipping my Earl Grey. And what about you, David? And I'm just about to open... A Lagorado. I don't know. I think that's how you meant to pronounce it. But I chose it because the uh, the scene on the can is is rather delightful, and it actually puts me in mind of the trip that the children are about to go on. Is it yellow beer? Because that's not beer. Well, it's lager. <laughs> oh gosh, <laughs> I was at Malcolm's Pub once, the Blue Ball outside of Cambridge near Grantchester, and um, somebody came up to the barman who'd owned the place forever, big long beard and gruff looking guy and asked for a lager. And he said, we don't serve lager here. We only serve, serve beer. beer. Beer is brown is, is <laughs> what I say. Beer is brown. Well, Andrew, would you maybe like to lead us in a toast? I would love to lead us in a toast. I think this should be rephrased to like both of the co-hosts. Wonderful. <laughs> Wives? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I tell my wife every day how amazing she is and how much she means to me and what a wonderful person she is. I love you, dear. Please, please, please be nice. So we don't need to toast this then. 
we raise our glasses and we toast our wonderful wives and the wife that God may have for Matt. Lord have mercy. Part of my steady prayers and um, thanking God for the way that he provides not only help, but a hope in these people he's called to our sides. So cheers. 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 All get what they want. They do not always like it. Cheers. <laughs> Wait, oh, you what? mean our wives will get that's what they a terrible, want? Terrible. That that can be interpreted. <laughs> yeah, David, that just could be interpreted the exact opposite way of I think how you might have meant it. Was that at your wedding? Did you tell us? <laughs> we get what we want. Yeah, we don't yeah, always yeah, like yeah. it. You <laughs> yeah, at my wedding, I quoted Chesterton that marriage is a jewel to the death, which no man should deny. Ah, okay. <laughs> so he had death and denial at his marriage. Great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, let me give a hundred word recap of the story so far. Polly and Diggory are tricked by Diggory's Uncle Andrew to touch magical rings which wish them off to other worlds. While exploring a world, Diggory rings a bell, waking a tyrant queen. They try to escape, but she manages to come back with them to London, where carnage ensues. They use the rings to take her back out of our world, but accidentally bring along Andrew, as well as a cabbie and his horse. They arrive in a world which initially seems empty, but then encounter a great lion, whose song summons the stars and the breaking of the dawn. So that was where we left it last time, and here is my summary for the first chapter we're going to look at today, Chapter 9, The Founding of Narnia. Uncle Andrew tries to steal away back to the wood between the worlds. The witch catches him, attempting to do this, and the two argue. As the lion continues to sing, trees, grass and flowers begin to grow. The witch throws the lamppost bar at him, but it just bounces off the lion, causing the witch to run away. Uncle Andrew also tries to flee, but just falls into a creek. <laughs> you know, I appreciate it in here. Um, I might be... Uh, Kristen, I'm known to do this a little bit where I try to read too much into something. And I did that in the last year. And I and I I want to assume like this when Uncle Andrew is angry and and the witch doesn't like that he's no longer like groveling at him. And he gives this whole spiel of how she didn't treat him right and he's been robbed a highly respectable juror. He feels publicly disgraced and stuff. So he kind of he he gave himself over to the seductive nature of evil. Except he gets a seems like here a brief glimpse of grace that it didn't give him what he thought. Now, unfortunately, there's not some massively happy ending that comes later, but it seems like this was an opportunity for him to realize the seductiveness was a false seductiveness. Mm. Mm-hmm. At least that's what I was hoping Lewis was trying yeah. to communicate here. And also his self-preservation kicks in. He's trying to get home. He doesn't actually care about her. The one he cares about most is himself. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That's the other way to read this. <laughs> Probably the straightforward thing Lewis was thinking. I think even falling into a river, though, is an unfortunate circumstance, perhaps, as interpreted by uh, by Andrew, but in some ways could be an invitation. It could be an almost baptismal invitation to stop and reconsider yourself, um, bury the old self, and let the new self arise. Uh, he ignores it, but I think that Um, I think that there are opportunities, even in adversity, all around to let those things be baptized to us and be to our good. Um, And Andrew, of course, has got his fingers in his ears, but at least the invitation is there. Yeah. You know, what really uh, struck me, you know, 
in this chapter is is the biblical imagery. Lewis could have had Aslan create the world any which way, um, but we have him not only singing it into existence, which we talked about uh, in the previous episode, but we also have Aslan breathing on the animals mm-hmm. and giving them the gift of speech. Mm-hmm. Be talking beasts. Mm-hmm. You know, in Genesis two seven, it says that God created Adam and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. We also have in John twenty where Jesus breathes on his disciples and says receive the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And so that sort of biblical imagery uh, just, you know, that resonates. Um, He also talks about a swift flash like fire, either from the sky or from the lion itself. And again, that kind of harkens back to uh, to Pentecost, which we just celebrated in the church year, and the flames, uh, um, the tongues that look like flames, um, just this supernatural thing that happens, this powerful moment when the creatures in Narnia are filled not only with, with physical biological life, but with the life of the spirit, and they become living, talking, reasoning, um, uh, sentient beings. Mm. One might even call them now. They are now. I think it's very important, and I kind of picked this up during my research on Take a Sip, um, but as I'm trying to make the case for clarity and charity as the kind of overarching themes of Lewis's work, what's the first thing not that that Aslan says to Narnia, but what's the first word that the Narnians hear at the end of the chapter? He says, Narnia, Narnia, Narnia. There's a threefoldness there. It's the way that um, that Eustace and Jill get into Narnia. Oh, Aslan, 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 hmm. right? Um, and he says, awake. After they awake, the first thing they hear is love. And how do we love? We think and we speak, and we are walking trees and talking beasts and divine waters. But the first command in Narnia is the center of Lewis's uh, kind of ethical thrust of everything that he's doing. The first, the first command in Narnia is our first command too: to love, to love Aslan, to love our neighbors, right? And that's what's going on, and that will ultimately defeat the petty schemes of Uncle Andrew and the grander evil designed by Jadis. Well, speaking of Uncle Andrew, against the backdrop of this beautiful country being made, how does he respond to it? <laughs> well, uh, it looks like his first concern, his first thought is, how can you make some money off of this? <laughs> <laughs> and and isn't that typical of the mindset of some some people? And that even uh, some of us can fall into that trap of, of looking at life as what we can get out of it or what we can do with it. Or what the question, what is it good for? Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of just appreciating the beauty and the majesty and the glory of it, I think we can become so uh, practically minded that that we miss the beauty all around us. Or in Uncle Andrew's case, where we are, uh, you know, our first thought is how can how can we twist this good? Mm-hmm. How can we twist it into something evil? How can we um, make it serve our ends instead of asking what it might uh, want us to serve, mm-hmm. what it might call us to serve? Well, in an earlier chapter, the second time it speaks about people and things, there's the line from the narrator saying that witches are very practical because it's a question of how they can use things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's utilitarian, it's materialistic, and here we have somebody also who is concerned with son's blood, remember? Mm-hmm. Yes, this is, this is his divine moment, yes. uh, whereas he's been Western for most of, most of this story. I just love the priorities of um, Cabby again here. After the whole Uncle Andrew spiel, oh, stow it, governor, do stow it. 
Watching and listening is a thing at present, not talking. <laughs> just reminded me of the scripture verse of Mary and Martha and who's in the present. Who just sits there? Like you're in the present of Aslan and it's just like, just be. Mm-hmm. And St. James, be quick to listen, mm-hmm. slow to speak, slow yep. to anger. Now, there's a bigger thing I thought here, David. I don't know if you were going to, you might have talked this, but I didn't look at your notes at all before this. Um, sorry, sorry, sorry. Wait, 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 wait. wait. <gasps> You didn't look at my notes? Okay, now please carry on. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I love how Diggory here, this contrast to the beginning. We're seeing this here. This is the first moment, I think, in a big way. No fear, said Diggory. We want to stay and see what happens. I thought you wanted to know about other worlds. Don't you like it now? You're here. I put the word curiosity here. The curiosity got Mm -hmm. him in trouble with the bell. He couldn't let that go. He had to ring it, and that's why how we get Jadis and Evil. The curiosity, it's a big Lewis theme. This is Andrew, what I was talking about with the Harry Potter, the second book, when Dumbledore points out that he has a lot of similarities to Voldemort, the evil one, but he goes, it's not your natural similarities. It's the choices you mm. make with your mm-hmm. traits. It's the same thing here. Like His curiosity isn't the problem. Mm. It's when how mm. it's applied. In the first moment, it was applied quite mm-hmm. negatively. And this moment, the curiosity is keeping him here and, and being present in this. And so I think there's, uh, I like the bit of the redemption arc here of curiosity in a good sense. And part of that is because that's what happens when a human child breathes Narnian air, right? They're at least invited or can kind of sense this internal call. They're breathing the Narnian spirit um, to be the better part of themselves. So the Narnian spirit redeems that the the trait, like the negative expression of the trait. In his case, the grace is kind of pulling out the positive. Right. Absolutely. And his phrase, no fear, which is, of course, a British schoolboyism or a Britishism. Right, David? Mm-hmm. But it also, remember, at the end of the last battle... Um, I think it's Edmund who notices that we can't fear. Try it. You can't fear. So in Aslan's country, there is no fear. So we don't quite have the fall yet, although Jadis is here. But he his response to breathing the Narnian spirit is to lose fear. And fear is often, as we know from Screwtape Letters, is, is self-centered or can be self-centered. I'm not sh- saying that there aren't good things to fear. But this is not the time for speaking, says the cabbie. It's the time for singing a hymn and for looking and listening. But it's also not the time for fearing. And I love that, as you as you mentioned, just being in the Narnian presence and breathing the Narnian air acts redemptively and then unbends the curiosity and allows it to go the way that it's supposed to go. That's That's well observed. Thank you, Andrew. Father Lazo. And we also learnt when we were going through Out of the Sun Planet what fear does to people. It leads to real problems when they're afraid because they don't see clearly. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it is actually Lucy in the last battle that says, You you can't fe- you can't feel fear now, even if you try. Uh, but that's what causes so many of the problems in Out of the Silent Planet, because all the humans keep fearing and they therefore don't see things cl- and perceive things clearly. Clarity and charity, the themes of Till We Have Faces. <laughs> and, and, but also think about Orwell, what Orwell says, the initial lie on the first page, being for all these reasons free from the fear of the gods, but she fears them all the time. I mean, she's afraid all throughout. And it's only at the end that when she's freed from herself, she's freed from fear because she's looking at love. And when we look at love, it's hard to fear like St. Peter. Right. When he looked at our Lord, 
Um, he did not fear the waves, but it's when we take our eyes from him and look at our own situation. And that's in some ways the reverse of the parable of what happens to Orwall. And I think that these elements are here. And remember that these are very close in terms of their writing. So these themes are probably knocking around the kilns there in the early 50s. Another thing I wanted to say in this chapter was I underlined after we are, we've already talked about how Uncle Andrew had this idea of the commercialization of all of this. Mm -hmm. but, but he also wanted to, he says, the first thing is to get that brute shot, referring to <laughs> Aslan. And I was thinking, because then it says right afterwards, Polly, you're just like the witch. All you think of is killing things. And, and this might be, again, me trying to overly spiritualize something, but for Uncle Andrew to exploit and to really turn from the normal way towards Evo, he needs to kill Aslan first, like in our own hearts. Like if, if we can't just like, we really can't hold both be really super close to Aslan and super doing a lot of evil. It's like you have to kill one of them to be able to do the other one. And so it's like, I need to kill this thing first. It's almost like he knows this thing is standing in the way of what he wants to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And even that killing, I think, is mitigating against the creative energy that's embodied by Venus, right? The very mm. ground is going to give birth to things. This is not a time for killing. This is a time for um, birthing, and he totally misses that. And from the earth, uh, there bubble up animals. It's a wonderful description uh, of, of how they come to be. He describes it as grassy land bubbling like water in a pot. And so that's how the animals appear, and then Aslan goes through and picks out some of them that we'll find out. They become talking beasts, and so they change in size and uh, obviously, the ability to reason. They've become now. And then that takes us through to chapter 10, the first joke and other matters. Oh, forgive me. Um, just it's worth, it's worth quoting just a little bit of Planet Narnia. Um, okay. Lewis makes no effort to hide the pleasure he derives from this view of the cosmos. Uh, he remarks that the human imagination has seldom entertained an object so sublimely ordered. The medieval universe was, quote, tingling with anthropomorphic life, dancing, ceremonial, a festival, not a machine. Its tingling quality is especially worth noting, for Lewis is here drawing on his knowledge of Old English. Um, it quotes his a letter to his father. Anglo-Saxon gives the impression of parodied English badly spelled. Thus, tingle for a star. Think of twinkle, twinkle, little star. So tingling sounds in Ransom's rooms. Um, and this idea of tingling means it's related to the stars. It's, it's linguistically related. And of course, I first picked that up in Michael Ward. Um, and we find tingling going on all over. I've noticed it three or four times just in the chapters we've discussed. Yes, it says every drop of blood tingled in the children's bodies, and the deepest, wildest voice they had ever heard was saying, Narnia, Narnia, awake. Yes, yes. And that's that intersection with the stars, um, this harmony that we have long lost here in the silent planet, but it's, but it's not absent from Narnia. So on to chapter 10, the first joke and other matters. Naiads, dryads, fawns, satyrs, dwarves come out of the woods, and the animals previously selected by the lion are now able to speak, including the cabbie's horse, Strawberry. The humans ask Strawberry about meeting the lion, and he agrees to take Diggory to him. However, Uncle Andrew gets chased in the other direction by some well-meaning animals. <laughs> what do you make of the fact that there are dumb beasts and there are speaking beasts? 
and the relationship between the two. Because it's it's something that I remember thinking a lot about as a child. Mm. Mm. I think that we have to, at the beginning of, of Narnia, go back to the end of Narnia, which we find in the last battle. And this is one of the reasons that I put Till We Have Faces together with this, because uh, and drink if you want. There are other reasons you put Till We Have Faces together with this. Andrew, you have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but it's it confirmed my major theory about the end of Till We Have Faces. Long did I hate you, long did I fear you, I might love you. At the end of the last battle, these talking beasts all come towards Aslan as Narnia is falling. And when they look at him with hatred and fear, they lose their sentience and go to the left. But if they look at him with love, they retain their nowness and go into Aslan's country. And so there's this clear opposition between hatred and fear and love. And he really summarizes that in his last fiction. But you find those elements right here at the, at the founding of Narnia. And not an accident that the hatred and fear versus love is here in Magician's Nephew, is soon to be written in Last Battle, and is also um, in Until We Have Faces. Do not go back to their ways, lest you cease to be talking beasts. For out of them you were taken, and into them you can return. From dust to dust. <laughs> you know, there there is this principle, and it, it's it's hard to wrap our heads around, and it's difficult in this world full of participation trophies to even tolerate. But but the reality is scripture teaches that many are called, but few are chosen, um, that God specifically calls people into his kingdom, calls us to, and why some of us respond and, and some of us don't, um, why some people will have a heart for Jesus and want to follow him and some don't is, is hard to understand. But there is a distinction there. There are those who are his and those who choose not to be, uh, those who, who seem either incapable or unwilling of responding. So there is that kind of parallel of there are some that are chosen, that are given the gift of speech, that have uh, the, the ability to understand and, and to relate and to be leaders and to be God's chosen in, in Narnia, and there are some that aren't. Um, but we do see that they have, that even those who are chosen, even those who are called, who are given this gift, it is a gift that they can reject. It is a gift that they can abandon. And we see them do that in Prince Caspian, right? What, what Aslan is talking about here happens in Prince Caspian when those creatures uh, go back to uh, they become wild inside, Lucy says, mm -hmm. and they lose their gift of speech. So even, uh, you know, we, so we don't presume on our calling. We don't presume on uh, this relationship that God offers us. We, we value it and we treasure it and we nurture it and we develop it. Otherwise, you know, in, at least in Narnia, we're at the risk of losing it. Now, Weston famously didn't really understand laughter in any language. But here at the dawn of Narnia, we have the first joke. <laughs> Matt, did you find this funny? Let me look. I found it funny that somebody became a first joke. <laughs> yeah, the, the humor cranks up a couple of notches here. I did write stuff. I remember writing ha-ha <laughs> frequently in my notes. By the way, the reason this is taking me a second is I was looking ahead, anticipating and not listening to words you said, David. <laughs> as long as you were listening to every word I said. Oh, sorry, sorry, hang on, wait, wait, let me back. You weren't listening to what I said? <laughs> <laughs> he was too busy not ignoring your notes. 
you know, he couldn't. I have this starred mm. part right here that I was reading ahead to make sure I was prepped for when we got to it. Um, I do not have a ha next to the first joke, David, so I must not have found it that funny. Wow. Okay. I know. That's not good. I did put ha's later in here, though. I'll bring them up when I thought it was really funny. Okay. <laughs> well, I thought it was kind of funny when the rabbit uh, tried to identify uh, a human as a kind of large lettuce. <laughs> I thought oh, that was rather yes. funny. My first one where I put LMAO, which is kind of actually bad when you read it out, comes in the next chapter. He's laughing his assling off. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> wow. Actually, if you read the letters, he says, I myself pronounce it Aslan, and he capitalizes A-S-S. Mm -hmm. hmm. So that's how I pronounce it. Sorry, that's how Jack and I pronounce it. Well, some people are muddled. Oh. <laughs> David, I will say I was very seen a little bit later in here when it says, like the witch who is dreadfully practical. I'm like, man, practicality is really getting associated with the witch. This is uh, oh yes, <laughs> this is the story of my life is I'm dreadfully practical. It's not always a great trait. <laughs> no, I feel super seen right now. <laughs> but a little bit of practicality would be good from time to time because if the animals uh, were a little bit more practical or maybe saw a little bit more clearly, once again, we're coming back to that idea of seeing and perceiving, uh, they are trying to work out what Uncle Andrew is. Mm -hmm. Uh, and he doesn't actually understand their speech and vice versa. There's a, there's a line here that is very reminiscent of Out of the Silent Planet. Uncle Andrew tried his hardest to make himself believe that it wasn't singing. So this is referring to Aslan and never had been singing. Now, the trouble with trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is you very often <laughs> succeed. Uncle Andrew did. He soon did hear nothing but roaring in Aslan's song. Soon, he couldn't have heard anything else, even if he had wanted to. Mm -hmm. That I underlined deeply and starred. I mean, how this goes back to what I said in the last episode a little bit. My first thought is a deep fear in, in, in my own life. How am I making myself? What behaviors am I doing? What things to not be able to even hear the voice of God? Mm hmm there's a bit of a fear to that. But then I guess going back to the same thing I said last episode, if you just continue focusing on Christ, you don't need to be afraid of that. Right. Um, but then it also made me really grateful because even in my darkest moments, when I just feel really distant from God, it's amazing how he, it's very clear when he puts stuff in your life, you'll watch a movie and you'll start crying because you'll realize it taps into something where you're feeling you're missing it. Or you read some book and it's like, whoa, that just smacked me across the head. I mean, there's so many non-Christian things, or I don't want to say non-Christian, but like there's non-directly biblical things. It's not like opening scripture, but he's still just smacking you. And I'm like, thank mm -hmm. God he hasn't yes. given up on me yet. <laughs> and the warning, and this is this is the line which which connects this book with Out of the Silent Planet. I alluded to this in our last episode. What you see and hear depends a good deal on where you are standing. It also depends on what sort of person mm -hmm. you are. Mm. So so there, there is a responsibility to be standing in a place where you can view things correctly and cultivating in yourself the virtues to be the kind of person who can see, like Lucy, very clearly. I mean, this is what Orwell does to herself. She blinds herself in the same way that Uncle Andrew does. The invitation to your heart dancing 
she doesn't ask who's speaking. She doesn't consider whether or not it should, it, she should follow it. She just, you know, refuses. She puts her fingers in her ears and goes, no, 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 no. And then a few moments later, when Psyche asks her, why should our hearts not dance? She doesn't make the connections because if we will deafen ourselves, soon we won't be able to hear. And that's a connection with the ne next book with the dwarfs, right? The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. The dwarfs mm -hmm. are so self-centered. They sit in a circle looking at themselves mm -hmm. and they can't smell or taste the food. They can't hear the songs of Aslan's country. They're in Aslan's country, but they think that they're in hell. Uh, they think they're, they're still in this dingy shed. And these themes of seeing because we say yes to love, and that's why Lucy sees Lucy sees because she says yes to selflessness, to love. Andrew can't see or hear because he says no to love and yes only to himself. And Jadis is kind of a paragon example of what happens in the end when that when that comes to be. The same thing is all over um, the great divorce. These people can't see heaven. They can only see the paper that they want to give down in the gray town. And I think that is a very practical warning against that same danger in ourselves. Well, the scripture describes these people in Ephesians 4.18. It says, They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Mm -hmm. And that's what, we, that's what we're talking about right here, this, this hardening of our hearts so that we cannot see the truth and we can't perceive it and we, and we lose our ability to respond to it. But if we can harden our hearts, that also means by the grace of the Holy Spirit, our hearts can be softened. And that's what we hope for, isn't it? Well, and to take a page out of my mm -hmm. wife's book, I'll also talk about the scripture. Um, when Pharaoh hardens his heart, it's a completely different word than when God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And it says in the Hebrew that Pharaoh makes his heart stupid. And then God sets that decision in stone. So it's two completely different words that shouldn't be translated the same. But that's what we see here. We see, um, we see Jadis at the end of a hardness. And God reinforcing that decision to bring glory um, by his eventual death and resurrection. And in the same way, we see that stupidity in the dwarfs and in Uncle Andrew and others. Well, let's go on to chapter 11. Diggory and his uncle are both in trouble. Hmm. While the animals are trying to figure out what Uncle Andrew is, Diggory comes face to face with the lion. Diggory confesses to him that he brought the witch into this world and that he mistreated Polly while in Charn. Aslan tells him that he will help undo the damage caused, and he declares that the cabbie and his wife will become the first king and queen of Narnia. So this chapter picks up with the animals still trying to work out what Uncle Andrew is. Mm -hmm. uh, the consensus seems to be that he's a tree uh, <laughs> because of his uh, stature and uh, impressive mop of hair. Uh, which, Andrew, I was going to ask you, is, is this a reference to Oldie, Lewis's sadistic headmaster? I, I don't know. I don't know that there's, a, there, that there's a physical description of Oldie. I'm not sure. Um, but um, perhaps, I mean, the, you have these kind of older, tall figures um, like Wither as well. And so um, I'd be hard pressed, but um, maybe you saw something that I didn't. Hmm. I'll have to. Have a poke around, see what I can find. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, they uh, they think that Uncle Andrew is a tree, and they thankfully plant him head upwards because it would have ended badly the other way. So before that part, David, that's that's the the part where I put 
LMAO. <laughs> For some reasons, I'm reading it. Then Uncle Andrew <laughs> dropped down in a dead faint. There, it's only a tree. I always thought so. <laughs> I don't know why that made me <laughs> chuckle so much. <laughs> but maybe it's because we've been just presented with how stupid Uncle Andrew is in this entire book and how asinine. And it's like, oh, he's a tree, like thick as a tree. Well, and when we read Paralandra, we'll find the innocent um, Tinadril also kind of assuming that an innocuous explanation for something quite nefarious. I think it's hopeful that they treat him like a tree. A tree is a good thing and that they try to sustain him. Um, and that too. I mean, it's like Rabidash being turned into a donkey. If he had seen, hey, this is judgment on the crappy way that I've approached. This is judgment on my own evil. Maybe I should turn around. If Rabidash had done that, he would have lost his donkey ears. Um, similarly, I think that if Andrew had finally taken this as a, you know, if he had said, man, I wish I were as good and plain and simple as a tree. I've been too smart by half all my life. If he had taken it like that, maybe the story would have gone a different way. And us too. I think God invites us out of ourselves um, and not to take ourselves quite so seriously. Well, I agree. In Andrew's next room, I would have bought him one of those plaques that says, bloom where you are planted. <laughs> <laughs> So the next bit that I wanted to focus That's on was great. actually Diggory's confession, because mm. this definitely had very biblical echoes of of the fall when yes. God comes into the garden and says, Adam, where are you? God knows where Adam is. What he's trying to do is, is get him to admit what's actually happened. And instead, it turns into the blame game. And Diggory, it's, it's fairly similar. He, he, he explains yeah. everything in very passive terms, like, oh, oh, the witch woke up. And it's like, okay, fine, I woke her up. Um, and, and he goes through his, his, the litany of things that he's done. But he does just come out and say it, uh, even if it does take a little bit of a growl from Aslan to uh, get the truth out of him. But what's wonderful, Kristen, you quoted it a little bit earlier, is Aslan has a plan. He says, mm -hmm. evil will come of that evil. But it's still a long way off, and I will see to it that the worst falls upon myself. Mm. And I would say this is an argument for the publication order, because anyone reading that who's read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe know exactly what kind of worst actually falls upon Aslan. Or chronological yes. order, because you want to uh, you know, leave it with this whole suspense, and you're wondering what this is going to be. And like that's how I – honestly, in yeah. this case, I'm not necessarily going to come to the end conclusion. I would personally put that as a point for like, if I read that, I'd be genuinely suspensefully curious of what's this thing going to befall Aslan? Is it going to be a Jesus-esque thing? Is it going to be a little bit different? I would actually probably think that way if I read this raw. Hmm. Well, your heresy aside, the bit that I really like in this <laughs> section is the fact that he tells Diggory that he's going to participate in the restoration yes. of Narnia. He's going to help yeah. heal it, he says. As Adam's race has done the harm, Adam's race shall help heal it. Since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Mm -hmm. We've got those scriptural themes and the part that we play. Um, I, I just, I love that. I love that you brought that out, David. I think this chapter is so rich in the scriptural parallels of, of the, the story of, you know, the story that is, that is the Bible of God's redeeming love for us. And it's, I think it's also important to note that, um, you know, Diggory brought evil into the world, right? Into Narnia, but he didn't create it. 
he's not responsible for for he didn't create Jadis. Uh, he so he, it's not entirely his fault, but he does bear some responsibility, and so it is his privilege and his responsibility to do what he can to make it right. And then the part that he can't do, uh, that will fall on Aslan, and Aslan will will uh, make all things well. I feel like you just made a really great like reverse reference to a, an Augustine theme I love, cooperating grace. Mm. We can't claim we've done anything to earn God's love. Let's just call that as it is. It's a grace. But there's a cooperation we can play into it. And Lewis kind of talks about mm-hmm. that too a little bit. Um, and so it's like there's like this sort of control we have a little bit of like free willy. And you kind of did it in the reverse sense. We didn't create evil. We can definitely cooperate with it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Right. Well, and I love those characters. In, I love those characters in particular. And I love, I'm just in love with Edmund's arc um, because he says yes to himself and he says yes to Jadis like Diggory did. But that's not the last word and that's not his last yes, right? His last yes is to Aslan and he doesn't listen to Jadis and he only just looks at Aslan, um, Edmund does. And you see Diggory um, have that same kind of arc. And I wonder if the professor had some sympathy for Edmund. I imagine they talked about this afterwards. And that whole redemption story, I sympathize. And I was first attracted to Peter in Narnia because he seems so righteous all the time. But as I get older and live more life, the, the Edmund story, the Eustace story, where they began to be better boys, the Diggory story, not because they're male, but because they blow it but that's not the final answer. And to me, that undoes the final ugly fate of the talking animals or Wither or Weston or whatever, because they too are offered the same mercy. And if they would have accepted it like these two or three uh, characters did, they would have been redeemed as well. And one thing I did just want to point out that struck me when I was reading through it this time, it was when Aslan calls the cabbie's wife into Narnia, the text says she felt sure that it was a call and that anyone who had heard that call would want to obey it and what's more, would be able to obey it, mm. however many worlds and ages lay between. Mm. And it put me in mind of Lazarus. Uh, and there's, there's, a, there's a song that one of my co-workers uh, sent me by Carmen, it's called Lazarus Come Forth. Oh, yeah. And it's telling the story of Lazarus in the grave talking to the patriarchs and them all realizing that they knew the same person, that they all knew the second person of the Trinity. They knew the word. And then Jesus calls him forth from the grave, and then he has to leave. And that, that, that crosses worlds and ages. I'm going to open up a controversial topic. I'm curious your guys' thoughts on with this. My first thought went to, and this probably because in West Michigan is where this uh, pastor came from. But there was, I used to really love this individual named Rob Bell when I grew up before he mm-hmm. started doing Mars Hill. And um, he had these NUMA video series. And I loved them when I was like 16, 18 early in my Christian journey. I still have the NUMA video series. The one way he talks about going for a hike with his son is my favorite. Yes. There's so many beautiful ones. And I don't want to take away from any of that. His book, Love Wins, was a bit controversial because it came across universalistic. And probably the overly simple way of saying it was, when you're in front of God, when you die, no matter how you live, you're gonna, it's gonna, his love is going to win out. So even if you didn't do it here and we die, it's not necessarily that he's sending us all to heaven, but indirectly his love will win even the worst. 
And so it's kind of an indirect around way. There's a beauty to it. I mean, there's a beauty to that desire that no matter how we lived here, his love will win out. This kind of reminded me of that because, and, and I almost wanted to push back on Lewis. It's like anyone who heard that call would want to obey it. And what's more would be able to obey it. It's like not everyone does want to obey it per se. Um, I mean, we're all technically here that call to some degree, unless the distinction here would be we've done things so we actually can't hear it, which came a little bit earlier in this book of, of from Uncle Andrew. But I'm just kind of curious your guys' thoughts on that. Do you think this- In your favorite book, he says there are two kinds of people, people who say to God, thy will be done, and people to whom God says, thy will be done. Can we ultimately say no to, to the love of God? That's a good way of phrasing it. I find it almost impossible to conceive of that. But then I know people who have hardened themselves so far that to them, the call of the love of God will sound like, you know, animal squawking. And the, the banquet at the marriage feast of the, of the lamb would, will smell like, you know, hay and dung because they have refused that long. And I don't think that God will override our will in order to force us into heaven. Um, and so I personally and theologically, especially as a priest, I absolutely believe in a hell created for the devil and his angels, as our Lord said. I hope that it's empty. But if it's not, it's because God created people like enough to himself that he gave them a will and he'll honor that. I think it's an incredible tragedy to consider Nevertheless, I think that it would be less loving of God to force people who didn't want to accept his love to accept it. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how the, how the soul surgery like that could take place. And I hear that Word on Fire is bringing out an annotated edition of mere Christianity from a very reliable source. And in that book, Lewis says, of course God knew what would happen if they used their freedom the wrong way. Apparently, he thought it worth the risk. Perhaps we feel inclined to disagree with him but there's a difficulty about disagreeing with God. Yes. Mm -hmm. We disagree with the very power that gave us the, the, the power of reason. I find myself in that place um, often when I get discouraged and overwhelmed and I see all the evil in the world and I can't understand how it could possibly be worth it. I can't see how our pitiful attempts to love Jesus and to do <laughs> right could possibly be worth all of all of the uh, all of the evil and horror and tragedy and suffering, but I'm not God, and that Lewis quote you know comes back to me in those moments and reminds me that somehow for God it is worth it. Somehow our love, our feeble attempts to obey Him and serve Him, um, you know, as weak as we are, He loves us and treasures us, and He thought it worth going through mm -hmm. all of this in order to have us with Him for all eternity. And and so those are I love that quote, David. Thank you. Now, I'll, I'll mitigate strongly against, I think that most, most of the universal versalism that I've heard advocated is by people who think that God isn't mean enough or sending people to hell would make God mean or this kind of almost sappy sympathy that we shouldn't be held responsible for our actions. And I don't hold to that kind of universalism. And Lewis writes a poem about it. God in his mercy made the fixed pains of hell. You know, that those people who would be so miserable and want to bring that misery into heaven, like we see in the great divorce, like Pam, who wants to drag Michael down to hell with her, that God will not allow those people who are miserable and want to inflict misery on the blessed. 
he won't allow that to happen. And he, and he made those gates firm. Um, so this idea that there can't be a hell because I don't want there to be, I don't think carries any kind of theological water. I think that though maybe God's mercy does reach everyone and maybe there's a moment that where God's mercy will reach. But if, if there is that moment, I think it's because God's love will triumph, but not triumph over the will that he gave us as a gift that he wouldn't take back. So, Well, and Andrew, to connect a little bit, David, you brought in Word on Fire. You mentioned that in, in Andrew. And my reliable source. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite podcasts I like to listen to is from the Word on Fire Institute, Bishop Barron, and he actually answered a very similar answer to yours that I liked. And that's just what I wanted to highlight to our listeners. He affirmed how, affirmed all that stuff. But he said, we really should, as Christians, have the desire that no one is in it. Like yes. that desire itself is a wonderfully beautiful desire. doesn't mean we get behind this theology of universalists per se in the extreme form. But it's like, there's a beauty in that desire. We should want no one to have chosen mm-hmm. hell ultimately. Mm-hmm. Now, and he wasn't going to say like, do I know who's in it or how am I yeah. in that stuff? No, but yeah. It's a good point, and I think that we overhumanize. We want there to be hell because we want the people that we don't like mm-hmm. to be there, right? And we don't want them to receive mercy. I think that it's our relationship with justice and to know that we all be- belong there and that somehow outside of myself, God's mercy reached me. I want that to happen for everyone. Yet also, I know that God will respect who I am and who I, you know, what I decide um, because of the nature of who he is. And David, I don't know if you're about to wrap up this chapter, but the last thing I wanted to say on this chapter was um, the cabbie. I mean, I loved his Mm. disposition, all of this stuff. There's a number of things I could say, but for time's sake, I'll ignore a couple of them. But at the very end, I like when he's, when Aslan is talking to the cabbie, um, he says, and if enemies came against the land... For enemies will arise and there was war. Would you be the first in the charge and the last in the retreat? I think there's just that right there is leadership. And I think if I'm correct, David, I should remember this. I interviewed the person, but you probably listened to it. The, the Joe Rigney. Joe yeah. Rigney, yes. Live like an Arnian. Live like an Arnian. He he talks about this and he defines this as just such an important thing to leadership. If you want to lead anything, you should be willing to be first in the charge and last into the retreat or else you shouldn't be being a leader. Like that's just, in, in, I just think that's so beautiful. So I wanted to highlight that. Which is also directly opposite to what Uncle Andrew says about it'd be like asking a general to go and fight on the front lines. Mm. Mm. That's great. I, I also just love that the cabbie says he feels like he knows Aslan already and Aslan says mm-hmm. he, he does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I just love that nod to the idea that the cabbie and his wife uh, were Christians, <laughs> were Christ followers in England. And so, of course, they recognize Aslan when they're in his world. Um, he said we would come to know him by his other name. And I, I just love that little nod there. Yes. Well, and St. Francis, if he is indeed modeled on St. Francis, St. Francis himself was a soldier. And so, and Mm -hmm. of course, we know that Lewis colors a lot of his stuff with battle imagery. So there may be a connection there as well. Well, let's go on to chapter 12, Strawberry's Adventure. Diggory agrees to go to the West and bring back an apple for Aslan, which will protect Narnia. Strawberry undergoes a transformation by Aslan into a pegasus. Polly joins Diggory on his quest, and they take flight on the newly renamed horse, Fledge. They eventually land in order to get some rest and some food. Fledge eats some grass, and the children eat a leftover bag of toffees, planting one of them in the ground. But later that night, 
they see a figure rush past them on foot. <laughs> you know, I love in the beginning when Diggory catches himself, he's willing to help Aslan when Aslan says, are you ready? And he wants to say yes, but, and catches himself. Like this whole mother thing of him wanting to heal his mother. It's a really beautiful example of Aslan using, it's not a negative desire, but at this point he loves his mother more than Aslan. But it's like God and Christ can use different things to get you to to come to them. Like this is a noble love, but as we know from the four loves, I mean, if he were to go on for the rest of his life loving his mother more than Aslan, it would actually be a demon. Um, mm-hmm. So it's so mm-hmm. it's not actually a great thing if it's at the level it is currently. But Aslan's not le- looking at the level it's at currently. He's taking advantage of this as an opportunity to yeah. work with Diggory and then transform that love on this journey. And the solution to loving something too much isn't to love it less, uh, but yes. to love the right Good things point. more. Yes. yes. Good point. Mm. Yes. First and second things. Nicely done. Well, mm-hmm. and look at Diggory's relationship with language and speaking. Diggory kept his mouth very tight shut. He didn't want to do anything uh, ridiculous. Um, are you ready to undo the wrong? And he begins to sputter out an excuse or an explanation. He doesn't answer the question. And Aslan repeats himself as our Lord does. I asked, are you ready? Not why it happened or what do you think happened, but are you ready to undo the wrong? What a gracious opportunity to undo the curse of the, of his sweet country of Narnia. And then he just says yes. And he doesn't put any conditions on it. And then he just bursts out with his love for his mother. Mm. So he's rightly, this is, I'm channeling Matt, he's rightly ordered in his affections. He can't do anything to explain himself. He says yes to Aslan and and does what he says he'll do Mm. and doesn't put any conditions. And then the, the cry of his heart, which as we find out soon, you know, is more on Aslan's heart even than on Diggory's heart, his mother's illness. And so what a great mm. model of how to deal with our prayer life, right? This is a model of prayer, I think. And this passage, it's one that I often well up with whenever I'm reading it. So mm. I'm, I'm going to have a go yes. reading it now and keeping it together. Yes. But please, please, won't you? Can't you give me something that will cure mother? Up until then, he'd been looking at the lion's great front feet and the huge claws on them. Now, in his despair, he looked at his face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life, for the tawny face was bent down near his own and, wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. There were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. My son, my son, said Aslan. I know. Mm. Grief is great. Only you and I in this land know that yet. Let us be good to one another. (laughs) Please, Aslan, said Lucy. Can anything be done to save Edmund? All shall be done, said Aslan. But it may be harder than you think. When Jesus saw her weeping... Mm. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled, and he wept. This reminds me so much of that beautiful passage when Jesus comforts Mary and Martha, 
But first he weeps with them. Mm -hmm. He feels their pain over the death of their brother Lazarus, even knowing full well that he intends to raise Lazarus from the dead. Yet he's present in that moment and he feels their pain, just as he feels our pain today. That incident, uh, my lovely wife points out, is just not long before he goes to the cross and carries Lazarus's death and carries Mary and Martha's pain, right? And carries all death and all sickness and all pain. And so some of his weeping, I think, is uh, maybe a, a foreshadowing of the, the Garden of Gethsemane, where he realizes that he will bear in his body all pain and relieve all pain by doing that. I'm going to say something here too in this, at the end of this section that this hit me hard is a profound spiritual lesson. He says at the very end of this, this paragraph, David, that you were reading, so this land shall have a long, bright, this is because he wants to plant this tree in Narnia first. Should This land shall have a long, bright morning before any clouds come over the sun. And I was thinking to myself, the clouds are coming over the sun because of his past actions. But there's going to be a bit of sun before the clouds. But remember, the clouds are directly tied to Diggory's choice of ringing the bell. And I was thinking in a spiritual journey for at least for us, and I put myself in this camp, who lived a very sinful life pre-conversion. Not that I'm living a non-sinful life post-conversion, but there's this like pre-time of surrendering to Christ. And then I experienced this wonderful period of just joy, I don't want to say joy, um, just like the sun was out then that conversion. You know, I had this conversion. I came to Christ after really wrestling with atheism and came to my faith and then went to like this dark night of the soul kind of period again. And I think to myself, what was that dark night of the soul in this period? And David, this goes back to our screw tape letters part. It's like the beginning was this one, there was this beautiful grace that I was given that was, that was allowed for me to, when I was coming to Christ, feeling that connection with him. And this new period is also a grace, but it's the clouds because not as like a um, a penance for what I did before, but the life I lived before led to things that needed to be purged. I mean, it's it's hard to let go of old ways unless we go through some tough periods. And we, we the ego, essentially another way I say this, the ego I developed needs to be killed one way or another. And so it's like this period is a grace too. And I feel like in here, he made this choice. There's going to be a beautiful period of sun and create, create this, but there is unfortunately going to be a cloud that needs to happen in this journey before the end can come again. And I feel like in our own spiritual journeys, it's like we have our encounter, we convert, we, we ascend, we say, yes, Lord. And then a lot of times we go through this bit of a cloud period. And a lot of times that's it's for our own benefit, um, but it's to do to things we've done in the past to help rid ourselves of that ego. And also the law of undulation. Mm -hmm. That too. But I like my answer, David. No. <laughs> I wasn't specifically thinking of this passage, but um, when I wrote this sonnet that Malcolm graciously recorded um, called I Bless You, uh, just this discussion reminds me of those lines and I was trying to remember who wrote them, which is how I know it wasn't, you know, they've maybe turned into poetry. It concludes, your body and your blood unmake all shame. Your empty grave alone makes all things new. Thus, in each bitter end, you stir and start. Thus, in each breaking, bless the broken heart. And it's that stirring. It's that breaking. 
It's where we reach the end of ourselves that Asan really begins to do that work. Even at the beginning of Narnia, all shall be done, uh, though it may be harder than we think. And so after that encounter, as I mentioned in the summary, uh, Strawberry gets a pair of new wings and a new name. And in an echo of Genesis, Aslan asks, is it good, Fledge? And he responds, it is very good, Aslan. And so then they, they, they take off and fly for a good while, but then they rest uh, and take some food. And there is this exchange, which I think tells us an awful lot about how, uh, how Lewis understands petitionary prayer. Mm-hmm. Well, I do think someone might have arranged our meals, said Diggory. <laughs> I'm sure Aslan would have, if you'd asked him, said Fledge. Wouldn't he know without being asked, said Polly. I've no doubt he would, said the horse, still with his mouth full. But I have a sort of idea that he likes to be asked. Mm. I underline that too. And as a child, I loved this scene because they bury toffees and it makes a toffee fruit <laughs> tree, which sounds yeah. amazing. How Uncle Diggory-esque <laughs> of you, commercialization of this for <laughs> selfish desires. No, 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 no. Remember what Screwtape says, that all of, all of the simple pleasures that the Lord gives us are meant to be enjoyed. He's a hedonist at heart, the enemy. Yeah, just not multiplied to infinitesness. No, no, he still has to wait for seasons. Does, doesn't flower all the time. <laughs> One thing that I did notice as I was reading through this time, there's an echo of the silver chair. Because we're told yep. that as they, as they sit after, after they've had their meal, they said, and they repeated to one another all the signs by which they would know the place they were looking mm. for. Mm. And that's what they should have been doing in the silver chair rather than going and having hospitality with giants. I love that what David started with them, you know, petitionary prayer, the, the beautiful parallel in Matthew 6, 8, where Jesus says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Mm-hmm. Yes, of course he knows. But then he goes on to teach us how to ask. Mm-hmm. If there's one line, and there's a lot of good lines in the magician's nephew, um, but if there's one line that has stuck with me through, you know, 30, 40 years, it's that he likes to be asked. And we do that. That's part of why the Lord's Prayer is part of every tradition, right? Give us this day our daily bread. Um, and I think that there's another echo in Silver Chair where they call on Aslan, right? They ask him, Aslan, Aslan, Aslan. Mm-hmm. So there's this, this invitation to. Um, speaking of Silver Chair, shameless plug, um, we're, Kristen and I are delighted to be going to, um, to Texas in October the 13th through the 15th, the C.S. Lewis Foundation is doing their Camp Allen retreat again. And it's called Remember the Signs. Uh, and and it's, a, it's based on the silver chair. So uh, more exploring of that as well. Um, but yes, this asking of him. Um, and that's, I think, worth doing. And so we then hear at the end of the chapter that a figure rushes past them in the night, probably the witch. Uh, and then that takes us to chapter 13, An Unexpected Meeting. The children will awake to discover the toffee they have planted has grown into a toffee fruit tree. They all have breakfast and a wash. The children climb back on Fledge and resume their journey. They eventually find the lake of which Aslan spoke and they alight on the hill near the garden. Diggory goes into the garden alone and takes an apple. But the witch is there and she tries to convince him to take the apple for himself. But they flee and they return it to Aslan. So this has a very clear biblical allusions. So we're definitely going to go over to Lazo Major. I, I still <laughs> like Lazo the Great. That's my favorite. Okay, Lazo the Great. We're going with Lazo the Great. Lazo the Greater. Or the Greater? That's a little bit more charitable. Let's go with that. Lazo the Greater. Yes. <laughs> You're great too, Andrew. 
Well, we have we have just there's so many uh, great parallels here, but we have John ten one. I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. Mm. And of course, that's exactly what we have with Jada. She does not come in by the gate; she enters as a thief and a robber. And she has this whole uh, conversation with Diggory that is like right out of Genesis and the serpent trying to uh, deceive Eve and question everything that she says and twist it around and say, well, did God really say? And that's what we see Jadis doing with Diggory, questioning him and suggesting that he disobey Aslan's instructions, um, trying to promise him that he can get the power, the healing, the hope that he needs by going outside of of the boundaries God has given him by by going in another way, by stealing or taking for himself. And, uh, you know, she promises him that, that it will be the answer to his prayers. Um, she tempts him to do the wrong thing, in, in not in unlike the way that Satan tempted Jesus. So, uh, like I said, there's so many scripture references and echoes of scripture here. We think about the way that Satan tempted Jesus to do the right thing for the wrong reason uh, or to take power um, that was that he was not yet to use, um, you know, to to be rebellious and disobedient. Whereas James four seven says, "Submit yourselves there, uh, then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you." And thankfully, in this chapter, this is where Diggory really makes the turn into choosing what is right and good, and and undoes some of the evil and the damage that he had done in Charn by resisting temptation, by refusing to give in and, and making the right choice. Can I ask a question to you guys? I'm curious how you'd answer this. Um, he says, who'd want to climb a wall if you could get in by a gate? Hmm. What do you think that looks like today? In the sense that what would be the person, so getting in the gates through the gate would be following the teachings that Christ has asked us to, dying to our ego, trying to put on virtue, all of that stuff. Like, what would what would it look like? What would a type of person who's like, I want Christianity or I want Christ, but I don't want to go through the gate. I want to jump over the walls. I'm just kind of curious how you would like speak to that. I haven't thought about it before. I think that's a great question. But as you're talking, I thought about Maybe what it is 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 people who want spirituality but don't want Jesus. Uh, people who one. people who want virtue and character but don't want the Holy Spirit to produce that fruit in them. Yeah. So they're going to try to do it by striving, by climbing over the wall, by setting tasks for themselves and their human, their fleshly effort to try to be this good, godly, spiritual person, to have the fruit of the Spirit without the Spirit. It's like trying to lose weight without exercising or trying to be strong without weightlifting. It's like you just... <laughs> Can't do it. And and also, I would suggest they want to sing the song of hell, which is, I did it mm, my way. Yes. I'm not going to go by the gate. I'm going to do it my way. I want to climb over the wall. That's how I'm going to do it. I'm not going to... I'm going to do everything on my terms. I'm unwilling to submit, I'm unwilling to obey, all the things that Diggory does in this chapter and that Jadis is trying to tempt him away from. I was just reading this morning about um, the prophet and Naaman who had leprosy and the prophet says, oh, all you have to do, Elisha says, just go wash. And he said, well, you know, I don't want to do it that way. Why, can't, why do I have to wash in the Jordan? And his counselor says, if he had asked you to do something hard, you would have done it. Right. And it's that same thing. I think that some of the parallel, too, is to those religions or those approaches to Christianity that are works based. 
And let me as a priest and a pastor say that you can't do enough in order to get to heaven. And if you think that God is angry at you after you have become a Christian, or that God will only be happy with you if you do this or that or the other, you don't understand the grace that is offered to us because of the cross. And if I think that I have to do and do and do and do in order to earn God's favor, rather than just receive this unmerited favor, this gift that's unconditionally given from God, we are in Screwtape's camp. We can't do anything, and there is no climbing over the wall. Jesus himself is the gate, right? He is the door uh, for the flock, and we have to go in through, through him and take him at his terms, that we can't do anything to earn anything, and we just have to say, I'm a screw-up, and you must forgive me. We have to approach like Edmund. We have to keep our eyes fixed on him and stand there in our shame and let Ashlyn himself remove our shame from us. And we can't do anything by ourselves. And that's, I think, part of what's happening. That is a good analogy too. And I think it's also instructive looking at the way the witch here tries to tempt mm -hmm. him away. Because what does she do? She tries to tempt him away with something good, a love, a great love, but she wants it disordered. Right. She wants him to put his mother above that of Aslan and promises all of these great things. She said that the pain will be gone. She'll feel stronger. She'll have a wonderful night of sleep without pain, without drugs. And then she'll be fully recovered. Your home will be happy again. She promises all of these good things, but there is a cost to it. He has to disobey Aslan. Mm. And thankfully, she then overplays her hand and suggests that he leave Polly behind. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> and it's, of course, the Garden of Eden. It's also the Garden of Hesperides. And then as Paul Ford um, cites Joe Christopher, um, it's the garden on Dante's Mount Purgatory. Um, and then Ford also notes that um, because Last Battle was finished before Magician's Nephew, the garden exactly corresponds to the garden in the Last Battle. And so there are a lot of different gardens. Um, Lewis's first, um, first work of scholarship is Allegory of Love based on the Roman de la Rose, um, the Romance of the Rose and the garden and the rose that's at the middle there. And so there's a bunch of different garden stuff going on here. But yeah, this illegitimacy um, and, uh, and and that's, of course, exactly what Jadis would do. And that takes us through to chapter 14, The Planting of the Tree. When Diggory returns, Aslan tells him to throw the apple towards the riverbank. Then Uncle Andrew is rescued from the animal's care, and Aslan sends him to sleep. The new king and queen of Narnia are then crowned, and they then see that the apple which Diggory threw had grown into a tree which would protect the country of Narnia. And finally, Aslan grants Diggory his greatest desire. Did you guys like the beginning Weight of Glory connection? Oh, please tell us, Matt. Oh, at least I think it's actually been about 10 years since I read the Weight of Glory, so I'm really hoping I'm right here. But doesn't he describe glory as like you've run this hard race, you get into heaven, and Jesus is like, well done to you? It's also scriptural. Well done, good and faithful servant. Yeah, well, that, that too. Well, that's probably the more direct reference here. <laughs> but I thought he also said in glory, like, glory is when you're, like, our Heavenly Father is proud of what you were able to do and not like a negative pride, but like you were, you've been trying to fight the good fight. I felt like I saw that there. 
Well done. I mean, you just got tempted in pretty deep way. Well done. Okay, I'm going to look it up, David, but if I find it, I get another shot glass. <laughs> I f uh, and then when I had thought it over, I saw that this view was scriptural. Nothing can eliminate from the parable the divine accolade. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. With that, a good deal of what I had been thinking all my life fell down like a house of cards. So um, is that from, yeah, that's from Way to Glory. So good. Hey, you guys will love this. I just searched chat GPT and asked, how does Lewis define glory? And uh, didn't even say in the way to glory. And it goes in the way of glory. Good <laughs> report with God. It says way more. It's like 10 paragraphs, but it says a good report with God. Like yeah. at the end, well done. Well, he gives two senses of. And David, give us a little hint, because I really didn't understand until a few Brits um, complimented me by saying, well done. And I'm like, yeah, okay, that just doesn't seem like all that big a compliment. But that's a big deal, right? Will you tell us a little bit about that phrase? Yeah. The import of it. We're an understated people. Uh, so when we say, well done, well done. <laughs> We're just not much into fanfare. To maintain sanity in the early days on this podcast, I realized David's way of saying well done to me was just keeping me on every other every week. <laughs> I was like, this, <laughs> this is the closest I'm getting. This is my praise that I'm still here. <laughs> Despite <laughs> me too. You know, I'm like, this is this is it. It took me a little bit of a learning curve in the first year. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I first started working for a company in the US, we didn't have any kind of performance review. And I had asked my boss after, I think it was like a year and three quarters or something. It's like, um, am I going to get a performance review? He said, why do you want that? I was like, well, I kind of want to know how I'm doing. He says, do you still work here? <laughs> yeah, says, you don't, fine. <laughs> By the way, not good advice for maintaining love relationships. You know, the old saw about the wife of 50 years saying, honey, do you love me? And he says, of course I love you. Why did you never tell me? I told you 50 years ago, if anything had changed, you would have been the first to know. <laughs> <laughs> That's not good marital advice. <laughs> tell your spouse quickly it, and often. It's, it's not, but my wife is also very forgiving. Oh, there you go. <laughs> well, one of the things that they find here is Uncle Andrew, uh, in a sort of mesh of branches. And this time reading through, I realized this is a Silmarillion. Because the, the trees have grown together. It's like one of the one was a young tree that seemed to be made of gold. The second was a young tree that seemed to be made of silver. Mm -hmm. But the third was a miserable object in muddy clothes sitting hunched up between them. So this is like the Silmarillion with the two trees of Valinor. Mm -hmm. But in this, this time, they grew from coins rather than the, uh, the light of the valor. Yeah, I think that there's some clear borrowing going on. Although, let's see. 53 or so. So the inklings have stopped meeting, but I think that Lewis is still reading. Um, and the Lord of the Rings is published. I'm not sure exactly the timeline on when Lewis is still reading Silmarillion, but their friendship continued. By the way, I don't know if I've ever mentioned it here before, but um, uh, Jerry Root told me a wonderful story about Lewis and Tolkien in the last year of Lewis's life. And David, if I did tell the story, I'd chop it. Um, but uh, people talk about the disaffection and the falling out between Lewis and Tolkien. And one of the Inklings once said the problem wasn't that the two men fell out. That the interesting thing is that two so different men would have, you know, spent so much time together. But even in the last year of his life, 
Um, Jerry Root met with one of Tolkien's sons who told him that last year, um, especially when Lewis was sick, uh, that Tolkien would have his son drive him over to the kilns once a week um, for a visit with Lewis. And so there was certainly closeness you know, between them at the end. Apropos of what, I now forget. Little senior moment there, honey? <laughs> well, no, the, the, the mutual influence. Wait, let me find a more respected big old reason for that. <laughs> Apropos of them still sharing their lives and their writings and things together. And so, yeah, I think absolutely Lewis owes a lot to Tolkien. In this chapter, we discover that there are limits as to what Aslan can actually do. And it's in particular reference to Uncle Andrew. Aslan says, but I cannot tell that to this old sinner, and I cannot comfort him either. He has made himself unable to hear my voice. If I speak to him, he would hear only growlings and roarings. Oh, Adam's sons, how cleverly you defend yourself against all that might do you good. Mm. And this is why Aslan sends him to sleep, which is kind of a, a flashback to the voyage of the dawn treader, that sometimes the, the therapy that somebody needs is apparently just a good long nap. <laughs> well, you know, the scripture says uh, of Jesus that there were places that he could not do many miracles because of their unbelief. Um, you know, uh, so that's a, that's a biblical concept that, you know, he could, he could only do for them what they were willing to receive. And what and so a lot of that had to do with the hardening of their heart, which we talked about earlier. But, um, but yeah, he's in his mercy. He does what he can, and he gives gives Uncle Andrew rest. I thought in this chapter there's a super interesting concept of, alas, it will. Things always work according to their nature. Like I, I guess I never really thought about that. They'll always work according to their nature, but if you approach it in the wrong way. It might not work out the way you think, which goes back to that line I mentioned earlier, all get what they want. They do not always like it. And so there's a lot that can be paraphrased there because it was pretty much a couple pages around that just describing how things are going to work out. If, if you go into the garden and you take the apple and you grab it for yourself versus you do as Aslan said, you're, you're both grabbing an apple, but in one way you're doing it in accordance with his will, one way you're doing it not, the apple's still going to have its same nature. But it will lead to a very different outcome due to the way you approached it. I thought there was just such an interesting dialogue that I never really thought about. It all will work according to its nature. It comes back to that idea that we've been talking about, that we receive gifts, but it's what we do with them that makes all the difference. Because a gift can either be used or misused. And our misuse doesn't change the gift, which I thought was the interesting mm -hmm. part. But it does change maybe how it kind of plays out. But the gift will still do what it was supposed to, it's supposed to do is a bit of a strong work. So that's not actually exactly true. But you, you kind of get what no, I mean. I like it can't that. deviate from its nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you use a, a DVR to record your programs, it will do what it needs to do. But if you try and use it as a Frisbee, it will work according to its nature, but you might not like <laughs> it. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, and the scripture says he gives sleep to those he loves. And sleep is restoration. Sleep is a time where dreams um, can come. I think that it's one more appeal to Uncle Andrew. Um, I think it's significant that Weston doesn't need to sleep because, um, because of the demon possession that we see in Barilandra. Um, and so it's one last appeal 
and we're connected body and soul. So maybe Uncle Andrew will wake refreshed and think about who allowed him to be refreshed by this natural process. Um, and maybe, maybe, you know, we see Elijah being put to sleep and then finding courage. Maybe he'll, he'll come around this way too. Uh, would that it were true. I know that this Uncle Andrew loves his sleep for sure. And <laughs> <laughs> connecting to that point I was making here earlier, where he talks about how uh, Diggory saying to Aslan, yes, Aslan, she wanted me to take an apple home to mother, which is what he's wanted to do from the beginning, but he had to go through the journey of bringing it to Aslan first, and there might be something there potentially with healing. And Aslan says, understand then that it would have healed her, but not to your joy or hers. The day would have come when you both, and she would have looked back and said it would have been better to die in that illness. And I thought there of two things, given the world, but you lose heaven. Like you're, you're given everything, but you lose everything. And the other thing I thought of is one of actually a quote that I say all the time to people, God loves you more than you love yourself. And I say that in a way that so often we're like, well, I prayed for this and God didn't give it to me. That's because he loved you. He didn't give it to you because you weren't able to see what the end outcome of that was going to be five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. We think we know and we ask for these certain things, like we ask for suffering to be taken away from us. We ask for these certain circumstances, but it's that suffering that was going to lead to a virtue two years from now as we go through that. But because he loves us more than we love ourselves or we're asking for it to be taken away, he's like, uh-uh. It's going to stay there, but that's because I love you. That's going to stay there. And we're looking at it like, oh, you must hate me because it's still here. So there's also this sense it's in Screwtape chapter 28. They, of course, do tend to regard death as the prime evil and survival as the greatest good. But that is because we have taught them to do so. There's something worse than death, right? There's something worse than dying. Um, and this disobedience to Aslan would have turned out like that for them. That's amazing. Lewis put that theme. I mean, that was kind of the outer silent planet. Mm -hmm. We think death is the worst thing, wisdom of death. Now it's here. Now it's screw tape. It's also in learning in wartime. Oh, I've never read that. He says that one of the things that war does is just remind us that death is our fate, right? Mm. Wisdom of death. And also we discovered through reading out of the silent planet that Ransom always does much better after he's had some food and a good mm. nap. Yes. Just like Elijah. <laughs> yes. But before we all have a well-deserved afternoon nap, particularly old man Lazo. <laughs> <laughs> old man Lazo's going to grill a steak uh, before we do. So we'll have a, a meal before the nap. So this is chapter 15, the end of this story and the beginning of all the others. Another argument in favor of publication order. Diggory finds himself in the wood between the worlds with Aslan and a still sleeping Uncle Andrew. Aslan gives them a warning and a command and they find themselves back in London at the same instant in which they left. Diggory goes to his mother with the apple, and she is healed. Polly collects the rings from Uncle Andrew's attic room, and they bury them with the apple core, which grows into a fine tree, which one day will be turned into a wardrobe. Matt, had you put this together, or had, had we revealed this, this twist to you a while ago? The fact that this tree becomes the wardrobe through which Lucy enters Narnia. I still didn't know that until this exact second you said it. 
<laughs> kind of hastened through the end of the reading last night there or this morning this afternoon yeah i did i read it about 11 40 well no this one was i was at a coffee shop as i was reading this and i ran into someone i knew and i literally told him at the end guys i have 30 pages to read and i've got 60 minutes before we record you gotta leave <laughs> and so i skimmed this fast <laughs> okay well <laughs> The apple core from the apple that Diggory gives to his mother. That's incredible. That is buried. It becomes a tree. Polly then adds the rings around it, which sounds a little bit like uh, Aragorn's flag from The Lord of the Rings. But then eventually uh, the tree blows down in a storm and then he converts it into a wardrobe and moves it to his country home where a little girl called Lucy Pevensey wanders into it. That's incredible. Another argument for chronological order. Well done. (laughs) That's so cool. Aslan says that there's a warning and a command. What are they? I don't remember. Hmm. Oh, something about, well, this is when he learned he had to bury the rings. That was one of the two. The command relates to the rings, but when they're back in the wood between the worlds, Aslan warns them about what Jadis did to her own world and basically says, don't head down this route. Yes. Before you are an old man and an old woman, great nations in your world will be ruled by tyrants who care no more for joy and justice and mercy than the Empress Jadis. Let your world beware. That is the warning. Now for the command, as soon as you can, take from this uncle of yours his magic rings and bury them so that no one can use them again. The scriptures tell us there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And Aslan even says that the witch will live like a goddess. Mm-hmm. So she reaches for divinity, but in the wrong way. Now, what's really interesting, again, if you've read this in publication order, you go, oh my goodness, of course. Because when they get back, it's at exactly the same instant that they had left. And Diggory says, great Scott, I believe the whole adventure's taken no time at all. And then we remember what happened in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Because Susan says, there was no time. Lucy had no time to go anywhere. She came running after us the very moment we were out of the room. and. Professor Kirk says, that is the very thing that makes her story so likely to be true. (laughs) If there really is a door in this house that leads to some other world, and I should warn you, this is a very strange house, and even I know little about it. If I say she had gone to another world, I should not at all be surprised that that other world had a separate time of its own, so that no matter how long you stay there, it would never take up any of our time. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mic drop. Yes. And, oh, what does he say? But do you do you really mean, sir, that there could be other worlds all over the place just round the corner like that? Nothing could be, nothing is more probable. So not just Narnia, but other worlds. And, and you don't know about those other worlds unless you read them in publication order. And I will share in the show notes a bunch of videos uh, from a YouTube channel that they spent time discussing all the theories about the wood between the worlds and what is it? Is it, you know, is it a multiverse? Uh, where exactly does it exist? Um, it'll, it's really fun. And that's Into the Wardrobe. And then the book wraps up with lots of happy endings. 
Digri's mother gets better, the house is happy. Um, <laughs> Aunt Letty even says that Mabel is the most childish of, of all the children when they're playing. Uh, they get a house, everything's wonderful, their father's coming home. You know, it, it's, it, it really is a fairy tale. You know, they lived happily ever after. It's beautiful. And it, I, I think um, in some ways, maybe Lewis was writing the happy ending he wished he could have for his own mother and mm. his own story. Because, of course, she died when he was eight. But as an adult, looking back from that perspective, perhaps he could see that she really was healed. Um, not the way that he prayed, but she was healed in in eternity and in, in her release and being in heaven, uh, being with Aslan. And so he writes a story where Diggory gets his healing here on Earth. Um, and perhaps some, I, I don't know, it just, it really sweetly resonated with me. And that thought of, of, it doesn't, our prayers aren't always answered the way that we hope, but they are answered. And ultimately they will work for our good and for the good of those we love and for God's glory. And so we can trust him for those happy endings, even while we wait for our own. Mm. And Lewis had already done a post-mortem happy mm -hmm. ending with Caspian at the end of the silver chair. Maybe that was Lewis's version of a severe mercy. Mm. Yeah, a tough one. <laughs> tough one, yes. Severe in a different sense. <laughs> the last word of Narnia is woman. A damn fine woman. Because this is finished last. And the next fiction he writes uh, is, you know, through the mouth of a woman. So, Well, I, I actually wanted to end by talking about Uncle Andrew. Mm. What do we make of him in the final accounting? Because he seems to have something of a redemption. It reminds me of what Chesterton said, uh, that the reason that angels can fly is because they take themselves so lightly, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that maybe he comes to terms with his own ridiculousness. <laughs> um, you have to be pretty egocentric to think that one could, you know, command powers and work magic. And he just kind of, you know, resigns into, into this ridiculousness that he embodies. But he does still always remember that woman. That dem fine, dem fine woman. woman. <laughs> yes. Which honestly, if you really think about it, let's let's just I'm, I'm gonna over spiritualize that for a second here. Take us home, Matt. Yeah. Well, she she's the seductive nature of evil, and how often, if you have a journey, individuals before you convert, before you just really, even if you've been a Christian, but you're raised it, but you just have that kind of like reversion sort of, you get rid of these vices and you live a virtuous life. We all can relate, though, to the fact that the some of those vices in your past are still kind of there. Like you still see them over your shoulder, like the dem fine woman. It's like you still remember them. You're in a different state now. You, you've brought Christ into your life, but you're kind of like you, you, they're still lurking there a little bit. And I don't mean that in like a negative sense per se, but there's just always a bit of an imprint from some of the past. And there's still a slight seductive quality still, even if you've overcome those things. And if we've learned anything, though, from the great divorce, it's those hellish souvenirs will ultimately be purged one way or the other. Yes. I wonder, too, if it, is, if it isn't this kind of humbling, um, this, this offer of humility to Diggory, you know, that, that Uncle Andrew surviving could be in some ways a kind of warning because they are very similar. They're very mm. intelligent men. You know, they, they, curious. they curious to a fault. You know, and Diggory's ringing the bell, you know, echoes that. And I wonder if, and it may keep Diggory from thinking too much of himself because this is his family. You know, in some ways, this is where he comes from. And he could go from the egocentric and maniacal 
um, to the uh, to the ridiculous. You know, the, that there's not a whole lot of glory of that. Um, and Lewis, I think, elsewhere talks about there's glory and shame enough for all of us in the heritage of our first parents, Adam and Eve. Right? Mm-hmm. There's this nobility and uh, and something and something to him that can work magic, but also he doesn't make good use of it. He he kind of acts as maybe a thorn in the flesh, you know, a warning for Diggory not to to continuously not go down that road um, as long as he lives. Well, before we go, is there anything else you guys would like to say? Uh, Kristen, is there anything in particular that you'd like to advertise? <laughs> now, I just, you know, as we've been talking um, over these two episodes, just realize again and again how much rich spiritual truth is in these stories and how how they speak to you in different seasons of your life. And so I would I would encourage our listeners uh, to continue to keep keep reading the chronicles, keep coming back to them, pick up a different one at a different time in your life. And God will use it as he is. Indeed, he uses many things. Uh, of course, his spirit, his, his scripture, but, and many other things, but, but the chronicles have a, you know, there's such a deep rootedness in scripture uh, that God will use it to speak into your life again and again, and to take time to savor the stories and enjoy them for what they are, but also allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you and see how you might apply some of these truths to your own life or how you might share them with others. Hmm. And Matt, how much do you know about the next book? Wait, I don't even know the title of the next book. Which one's next? <laughs> the Last Battle. Oh, the only thing I know was the end of um, – Andrew kind of gave the ending of it away on his Notre Dame talk that I listened to. Um, that's the You're only welcome. thing I know. Yeah. <laughs> Which is no no fault of his own. He's giving a talk and pulling this in. He, didn't, he, he assumed wise people have already read the book um, and I had not. But are we still having our publication chronological conversation here? Um, we're a little tight for time now. I think we might move that to maybe a common room. Unless Andrew just wants to crush him now. Andrew, what do you think? Let me just crush him with one line. Okay. I'm ready for this. In first uh, early chapter, the day with the beavers and the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, the first book, which should be read first as it was written first, as it comes first in the whole mythos. Mr. Beaver adds in a low whisper, they say Aslan is on the move, perhaps has already landed. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. Which is not true if you read Magician's Nephew first. That's a good line. In fairness, I'll say this because I, when I finished this, I was talking to the person I was talking to that I had to like shoo away. I had to finish the book with 60 (laughs) minutes left to go before recording at the coffee shop. Um, I was talking to her about this and, I had actually backed myself into the publication order of like a 60-40 kind of thing um, because in my argument was not that Andrew. I know there's little technicalities like that, but I actually think you can kind of speak those away if like the the, the desire of it. There's always going to be a little line or two that he can't go rewrite in the first time he did it. But for me, it was <sighs> – you, 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 there is something about you want to experience the world without knowing a bunch about it. And then you desire to go back and learn more about it versus like telling you all this stuff up front. And so that's mm-hmm. kind of what backed me into the publication. And she had just naturally read it mm-hmm. in the, in the, the other way to no reason the or wrong her way. own, just the way, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the wrong, the, the wrong way. way. Sure. The hair, the heretical way. And she <laughs> goes, 
you know, honestly, it made me yearn to read so much more. Like I got such a taste for it. I wanted to, and I deeply desired to read so much more. And then we both kind of came to the conclusion that no one will ever get the chance to have read both ways purely. Like which, if, which book could you read first to then decide this hooked me more into the world? Mm-hmm. Like we, we just can't because she got to experience the one way and she just loved it, loved it. It made her want more and more of Narnia. I will never experience that because I read it, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, but before she said that, my conclusion was 60-40 in the favor of publication because I was like, you know, you don't want the full history right away. You want some mystery and then you want to go back and get the history. Her experience is one, I think, of the charm of Narnia. And any book that you start with, it's going to pull you in uh, if you've read the right sort of books and you're the right sort of person. But like the the classics that Lewis loved and taught, um, the book starts in media race, right? It starts in the middle of matters. And so mm. I agree with uh, Lewis, or I re- agree with Lawrence Craig, who first suggested the, the Narnian order. A chronological order, and now agrees with publication order, by the way. I think the second time through Narnia, reading Magician's Nephew first is fantastic. And reading Magician's Nephew as a standalone is another fantastic way to do it. The second time through, chronological order all day long. The first time through, though, Lion. Well, I don't want to sound harsh, but I, I think the only wrong wrong way to experience the Chronicles of Narnia is to watch the movies. <laughs> <laughs> this we can agree on. You're here. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. David, I got to say this. I asked ChatGPT, and it goes, C.S. Lewis seemed open to the Narnia series being read in chronological order, as suggested by a letter he wrote to a young fan in 1957, and then does the letter. Lawrence. <laughs> That's my friend Lawrence Craig. This just proves so, so that we have nothing to fear from AI, because it's not very good, you know? So just, well, no, no, no. So just in this case, just, just, I want to make this really clear and just for listeners. So when Lewis said his best book was Till We Have Faces, as Andrew brings up, he was correct. But when he stated it could be read in chronological order, he was incorrect. Just want to make sure to clear this up. He was pandering to a child and that's totally fine. That sounds like rationalizing in a way. You know what the whole point of this is, and I know we do need to wrap up. What I think would have been great is to be at the pub with Jack and go at it hammer and tongs. And I would have <laughs> loved to have seen the Inklings there as well. And I think that we probably could have argued him into um, publication order. Mm-hmm. But I think that the fight would have been just glorious to have. Actually, it does finish this. I didn't read I didn't read the rest of it because it was a multi-paragraph thing, but it does say, however, this does not necessarily mean that he preferred chronological order. So maybe ChatGVT is, is, <laughs> is smarter than we think, David. It's in, it might be in your side. It's just hedging its bets. It's, <laughs> it's like its answer about whether Malachandra was fallen or not. But I think we've uh, tested our listeners' patience for long enough. So <laughs> I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Christian Ditchfield Lazo, <laughs> Demfine woman. Demfine, Demfine. <laughs> And I hear the call for final drinks. So thanks to Taylor Schroll and Sarah Allen, our audio engineers. Thanks to all of our listeners, patron supporters and top tier supporters, Matt 1 through 3, Marvin, Joelle, Deborah, Amanda, Emmy, Thomas, Bill, Joanna, Bud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Kelly, Chris, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. We pray for you all every week and all of the prayer requests in our Slack channel. And if you've enjoyed this episode and stuck with us through to the end, please <laughs> tell a friend. Maybe have an argument about which order the Narnian Chronicles should be read in. But don't let it sink to a quarrel.
but make sure you win. And make sure you define and describe <laughs> in that conversation. And please join us next time. When we'll continue. Going further up. And further in. Cheers. 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 Iwilage. Jack Judge. <laughs> no cheers. Cheers. <laughs>